Welcome to Theology with Dr. A.M. Hackney. This podcast is focused on the vocational calling of Christians to be theologians. You'll find episodes on systematic theology, spiritual formation, scriptural interpretation, and ethics. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Hackney. In today's episode, I'm talking about two of my favorite subjects, theology and geek culture. We're going to explore Jesus's question, who do you say that I am, and spend some time looking at images and allusions to the person and work of Christ in popular culture. I'm joined by a special guest, someone who has an even more impressive geek credential than myself, Dr. Charles Hackney. That's right, today's episode is another Dr. Hackney and Dr. Hackney team-up. Well, good morning. It's a Friday morning. The semester is done. Summer is starting. We're back with a Dr. Hackney and Dr. Hackney team-up episode, but it has nothing to do with psychology. There is another aspect in which Dr. Charles Hackney is an expert. What is your expertise, Chuck? I am a huge geek. Woohoo! So we are going to combine our love of theology and our love of all things geek And we're going to talk about Jesus in popular culture. Here we go. To get us started, Chuck, will you read for us from the Gospel of Matthew? Can you read Matthew 16, 13 to 20? All right, I can do that. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Hmm. It's really fascinating here. We have this question by Jesus, who do people say that I am? And then he explicitly says to Peter, but who do you say that I am? Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Not a lot. When people talk about who Jesus is, what are some of the answers you've heard? I mean, you've been around the block Uh, enough. A couple of times. Uh, Yeah, I've heard, you know, moral teacher. I've heard completely made up legendary figure. I've heard socialist revolutionary, long haired hippie. And one of my personal favorites is uh, gun toting Republican Jesus. (laughs) He's awesome. (laughs) So this question is still alive today. So especially the moral teacher one, that one tends to be the, the, the most palatable. Yep, Jesus existed. He had some interesting things to say. Son of God, not so much. I think the best example of this is Gandhi. Gandhi was actually a big Jesus fan, right? He was impressed with what Jesus did. And it's really interesting that Gandhi himself answers this question, who do you say that I am? He says this, this is a quote. I am sure that if Jesus were living here now among men, he would bless the lives of many who perhaps have never even heard his name. If only their lives embodied the virtues of which he was a living example on earth. So Jesus is a living example of virtue. That's fascinating. The virtues of loving one's neighbor as oneself and of doing good and charitable works among one's fellow men. What then does Jesus mean to me? 
To me, he was one of the greatest teachers humanity ever had. There we go. I think that's great what... Great teacher. Yeah, great, great teacher. Great moral teacher. Well, and I, I find it fascinating, this this idea of virtue, because you and I both do virtue ethics. Yes. I do it from a theological perspective. You do it from a psychological perspective. But this asks the question, what is virtue grounded in? So he's picking up on virtues, but... He is. And, and the idea of Jesus as moral exemplar is something that is part of our Christology. We, don't, we just don't say the nothing but. Uh, we don't say that he was nothing but a, a great moral teacher, or he was nothing but our example of true humanity and uh, someone who led a perfectly virtuous life. But that is in there. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the image of Jesus in our popular culture, especially TV and movies. And for the most part, since we're geeks, most of our examples are going to come from the sci-fi world. Does that work? That works. But in order to do that, I want us to step back and just talk about portrayals of Jesus himself in movies. So we have several movies that are explicitly Christian. They're trying to articulate a Christian message. They're produced by Christians. And probably the one that hit the zeitgeist in the early 2000s was Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. You have seen this movie. I have. And, I mean, there's a lot of controversy. There's controversy around Mel Gibson. There's controversy about some of the choices that he made. I did find it interesting that he decided to not do this in English and just, you know, let it be subtitled. One thing that, you know, that that I remember sort of behind the scenes stuff about the making of The Passion of the Christ was when they get to the crucifixion itself, and Jesus is stretched out to be nailed on the cross. You know, the nail is put there, and uh, we see the hammer, and we see the close-up of the hammer coming down to nail, to, to pound in the nails. Mel Gibson stepped in. That is his hand. He self-inserted as the one who nailed Jesus to the cross. I think what's interesting about, I mean, I love Jim Caviezel. So the fact that he played Jesus is fantastic. And yep. he's, he's a practicing Catholic. Like he takes his faith very seriously. And the fact that he could then bring that into the role is great. But I find that the portrayal of Jesus, we get a very bloody Jesus. It's a very violent movie. For me, that's a selling point. Okay. One of the things that uh, we, we we often see is a sanitized portrayal of the crucifixion. When we represent the crucifixion in art, very often it's, uh, I mean, Jesus might be kind of you know, skinny and we can count his ribs in the painting or the sculpture or something like that, but he's not ripped apart like you would expect somebody who had been flogged and beaten to be. So I, I think one of the great strengths of The Passion of the Christ is that it put the brutality of the crucifixion front and center. You can't say, oh, well, you know, you know, it's not so bad. You know, he's hanging up there. I mean, sure, the nails hurt. But no, this was a genuinely awful way to die. There is nothing dignified. There's nothing nice. There's nothing clean. So yeah, that part, that part I think is actually a uh, one of the good aspects of that film. And what's fascinating is that was a movie that was a Hollywood production. Yet they were marketing it very hard to churches. They had the Bible studies to go with it and the sermon notes to go with it. But we also have examples of Christians creating movies about Jesus for the express purpose of evangelism and mission. And probably the best example of this is the 1979 film, Jesus. It's just called the Jesus film. Did you ever see this? Was this something that your church did? I did not. I mean, I I was aware that it existed. 
Uh, and I knew some people who had seen it, but I, I didn't actually see it myself. Right. So that one's based on the Gospel of Luke, and it's been translated into hundreds of languages. In the 90s, we had the Visual Bible series, and in 1993, we had the Gospel of Matthew. And that's probably the evangelism one that I know, because I became a Christian in the late 90s. And so the church that I was a part of actually brought the actor who played Jesus to the church to give talks. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I think he's Canadian. If he's not Canadian, he spent a lot of time in Ontario touring all the churches <laughs> to talk about the connection between faith and Jesus and evangelism and film. All right. We also have portrayals that are meant to be about the real Jesus, but do not necessarily come from or are written by a Christian or intended for a Christian audience. I want to talk about Godspell. I love Godspell. Do you know Godspell? You've never seen Godspell. I have never seen Godspell. Uh, <sighs> yeah, so, so for someone who was raised a good Baptist boy, I apparently have uh, a, a startling gap in my cultural education when it comes to cinematic portrayals of Jesus. I'm really, really disappointed that you have not seen the film version of, of Godspell. I can get that you didn't see the theatrical version, although every high school in the 80s was doing some sort of production <laughs> of Godspell. So it had a 1971 off-Broadway debut when it was a musical, and it's the Gospel of Matthew meets the counterculture of New York City. So line for line, it's taken right from the Gospel of Matthew. The lyrics are drawn from scripture and the 1940 Episcopal hymnal. Okay. Yeah, so it's kind of cool. And the script was written by an Episcopalian in the 70s. And the story goes that he attended an Easter weekend service in overalls and a t-shirt. And as he was leaving the church, he was stopped by a cop and frisked for drugs because he was in an altered state. And that inspired him to write a play about what it would look like if Jesus came to the 70s, countercultural hippie New York City. And so what we see is the cast is always displayed very diverse, men and women, different cultures. So there's this sort of like feel to it. Now, I've shown you a clip from Godspell. Yes. Tell me what you saw. So this was the opening scene, prepare ye the way of the Lord. The, the disciples are being sort of called out. Tell me about what you saw in that clip. Okay, in my totally lacking context and never having seen the movie experience, I did see that clip. And uh, what I saw was, well, I mean, first off, we don't see, so it's, it's John the Baptist, uh, but we don't actually see John the Baptist until uh, a couple of minutes in. What we have is the, you know, the music and the lyrics and just sort of, you know, people all over the place, just kind of random people are walking away from their everyday lives. We see, uh, you know, some people, uh, you know, one person uh, puts down her books, uh, one person walks away from uh, uh, the, the, the job that he's working. There's a kind of you know, fun scene where a woman kicks off her shoes. What kind um, of shoes? No, no, to clarify the kind of shoes. Well, it's the 70s. Platform shoes. That's right. <laughs> And they're I mean, all... talk about liberation right oh, there. Yeah. Jesus frees you from the trappings of horrible shoes. <laughs> if only he could have done something about those bell bottoms. Ah. Uh. Yeah. So, and they're all coming to Central Park. And then we see John the Baptist, who looks like some sort of mutant Beatles groupie. So we've got bearded Sergeant Pepper calling the people to come get baptized in the big fountain. And it's this very, very joyful, very celebratory scene. People are splashing and romping around and singing. And so, yeah, that's it's a very... You know, very upbeat musical number. Mm -hmm. the, the scene continues after that, where they go back 
And when we see them again, the, the theme, because they're now baptized, they're now clothed in this sort of new life, is the theme is like Bohemian clown, which okay. is kind of interesting. And whenever Godspell is done, the crucifixion scene is against a chain link fence. I mean, that helps for a scene on a high school production, especially. Oh, uh, yeah, they're real. And, and that's the thing. Very often, the high school productions are very simple. It's just sort of a black stage with minimal props. It's meant to be a minimalist sort of stage. And so when Jesus is crucified in God's spell, they, they put him up against the chain link fence, and then they tie his wrists with red ribbons that then dangle down and represents the blood. Okay. So we'll contrast that with the Passion of the Christ. We kind of go from one extreme to the other. That's right. But especially when you're doing high school productions. Right? It's what? not like Wednesday <laughs> Adams in the Adams Family movie where she does that stage production with the gushing blood, right? Well, what's the matter? You don't want to see high schoolers get mangled? No. Godspell has a real special place in my heart. I mean, it's clearly intended for um, a secular audience, but it's quoting word for word hymns, it's quoting word for word the Gospel of Matthew. I didn't become a Christian until I was a teenager. But I sometimes look back at my life before I was a teenager and just sort of wonder if God was working in different places. And there's a couple places where I wonder if he was working. In sixth grade, maybe, I'm a little bit fuzzy. I went and saw my cousin in a high school production of Godspell, which the fact that a high school was doing a production that was explicitly reading scripture and singing hymns. I don't think that would fly today in 2022. I don't know either. I mean, the, the, the fact that it was a Broadway hit might have given it enough uh, you know mainstream cred to get through the filter at right. that time right and then in ninth grade again I, I wasn't a christian at this point but i got to be on the the backstage crew of our high school production of godspell and then when i changed high schools and i was a christian i actually got to do scenes from godspell so i actually got to sing parts of godspell oh, and no. i just wonder was god moving through that and i don't know But what's really interesting about Godspell is that the play and the movie doesn't have a resurrection. Oh. Yeah. The play actually ends where the disciples untie Jesus from the chain link fence and then carry him off the stage in sort of that crucified superhero pose that happens in all the movies. And they basically march him down the aisle, off the stage and then up the aisle and out the back door of the theater. Huh. Yeah. So it's really cool. So Wikipedia has a, uh, an interesting observation. They've got a quote from composer Stephen Schwartz as to why there's no resurrection. So this is what it says. There have been comments from some about the lack of an apparent resurrection in the show. Some choose the, to view the curtain call in which Jesus appears as symbolic of the resurrection. Which... Weak. Yeah. Because everyone has a curtain call in a stage production. Right? Right. Others point to the moment when the cast raises Jesus above their heads as they go to carry him off. But is that a resurrection? It doesn't. No, well, no, not if he's, you know, in, you know, lying there in in their arms, being passively carried. So Schwartz continues. He says, "God's spell is about the formation of a community which carries on Jesus's teaching after he has gone. It's the effect Jesus has on others, which is the story of the show, not whether or not he himself is resurrected." Therefore, it is very important at the end of the show that it be clear that the others have come through the violence and pain of the crucifixion sequence and leaves with a joyful determination to carry on the ideas and feelings they have learned during the course of the show. Oh, it's one of those, uh, so, you know, Jesus rose in all of us and is that sort of thing. In the story of scripture, is that what happens to the disciples? No. 
What happens to the disciples? They run and hide. They run and hide. It's run, only, yeah. They, they only have the joyful determination after they see the risen Christ. There's some bad theology there. A little bit, yeah. And if, if I remember correctly, I think this might be part of why I didn't see these things when I was a kid. Okay. Because uh, I heard, uh, like, you know, youth pastors and or Sunday school teachers and stuff. Yeah, don't don't go see that one because it's got a bad portrayal of Jesus for this reason. So yeah. let's turn to another one. Okay. Let's turn to Jesus Christ Superstar. Which I also have not seen. So this is a rock opera based on the last week of Jesus's life by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Who is singing this? This is, is, is this Judas, Judas Iscariot. This? So Judas is singing this. So this is Judas. Okay. Yes. Here's some of the lyrics from uh, from Jesus Christ Superstar. Every time I look at you, I don't understand why you let the things you did get so out of hand. You'd have managed better if you'd had it planned. Now, why did you choose such a backward time in such a strange land? If you'd have come today, you could have reached the whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. All right then, uh, and then there's you know the 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 part in the middle that gets repeated over and over is you know don't get me wrong, I only want to know Jesus Christ, who are you? Do you think you're what they say you are? Kind of you know, over and over and over. Which is a twist on the who do you say that I am? Right. So you know who do you say you are? Right. Something like that. And then we sort of uh, you know get a thing at the end where uh, you know you know Jesus, I want to know what do you think about Buddha? What do you think about Muhammad? Are they, are, are they up there with you too? Did you mean to die like that? Was that a mistake? Or did you know your messy death would be a record breaker? I showed you one clip very specifically on purpose. And this is the one I show my students. And it's from the Tonys. So this is, you know how in the Tonys, the Tony oh, yeah, Awards, yeah. they'll, they, they they'll come bring out, out the, a cast. They, they do the musical number. Yeah. And I love this for several reasons. The the one who introduces them is Ben Vereen. Gotta love Ben Vereen. So the stage production in the Tonys has Judas Iscariot in like a lame suit. He's very shiny. <laughs> very 70s. And he's got the backup singers and the whole thing. And at one point they project Jesus on the back of the screen. And they have him starting the words from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I tell you. And the backup singers are saying, I only want to know Jesus Christ Superstar. And what ends up happening during that scene? Well, they the singers drown out Jesus. They're so busy singing, I, I only want to know who are you, Jesus Christ, and I only want to know that they're not actually that nobody's actually listening to Jesus. The audience can't hear Jesus, and they ramp it up so the amplification increases on the singers, or you know, or maybe they turn down the channel with Jesus on. But whatever it is, by the time they get to the end of the song, I'm watching this clip that you showed me. I can see Jesus's lips moving, but all I hear is Jesus Christ, superstar. Who are you? I only want to know. Uh, well, uh, they only. Want want to know but they don't want to shut up long enough to find out and then they continue the clip and you know curtain opens and they've got more of the cast and right there front and center is jesus and they're still singing jesus christ i want to know superstar jesus is now and is now not even opening his mouth he's just standing there with his mouth shut while people sing around him about how they want to know who he is and what he thinks and they don't stop singing to actually find out and what's fascinating is Ju the way Judas Iscariot is sung there is it becomes this sort of like really passive aggressive. It's all about me. I only want to know. It's like this sort of feigned humility 
that actually sort of warps back on itself. And it's all about Judas Iscariot rather than Jesus. Listen, Lord, for your servant is speaking. That's right. What's really interesting about Jesus Christ Superstar is it's a very modern approach to Jesus. Like this is what a lot of modern historical critical scholarship does. It's about subjecting Jesus to our questions and we're the authority and he sort of has to rise to our inquiry. So that comes to the end of portraying Jesus in the movies. We have Jesus all over the place in movies without Jesus appearing in them. Right. We call this tropes. So let's talk about a trope. Do you want to define a trope? So a trope is a figure or an image. When a trope is overused, we'll use the term cliche. So a trope can be a particular type of scene. We've got character tropes. So knight in shining armor is a character trope. Wandering gunslinger is a character trope. Princess in the Tower is a character trope and a setting. Okay, so we talk about tropes in general. Let's talk about tropes related to Jesus. So this is a use of Jesus' actions in a movie that is not directly about Jesus. Right. So it's an uh, image or an action that audience will understand as meaning something more. Yeah, uh, the, one of the things about tropes is that characters do not have to be one-to-one representations. Trope and allegory are not the same thing. No, they're not. Narnia. Allegory or trope? Narnia is an allegory. That's right. Aslan is Jesus. Explicitly. That's right. We do have other Christian fantasy that is trope and not allegory. Right. I want to lay out four Christ tropes that we're going to explore as we look at geeky movies. Okay? And sort of explain them. If I throw these out, I don't know if you can define them or if you want me to define them or if you want to ask me about them. Well, this is the theology part, so you better define okay, them. Okay, so let's. you start with the first one. What's the first okay, one? Okay, so the first one uh, that you have listed is adoptionist savior. Okay, so adoptionism is a Christian heresy, the idea that Jesus was a good human and then he became God because of his virtue. So he's adopted by God. Okay. So an adoptionist savior is a character in a TV or a movie who is ordinary and average, but gets rewarded for being a hero. This character saves the day and becomes an example for others to follow. So very much it's plain ordinary Joe becomes a superhero because, Be- of, his because of his virtue. That's right. Okay. That's adoptionist savior. That's adoptionist savior. Okay. So next we have docetic savior. And you pronounced it correctly. You've been married to me long enough. <laughs> Does that mean we're done? No! <laughs> no! Docetism is a Christological heresy that says that Jesus only looked human, but wasn't actually human. So a docetic savior in this trope is an alien or an outsider who comes to save humanity and he only looks human, but he's not actually human. Okay. Looks human, not human. Looks human, but is not human. Yep. All right. Third trope we're going to explore is the theme of voluntary death. This one's pretty self-explanatory. Lays down his life for another. There we go. And then the last one is going to be the death and resurrection of the Savior. That's right. And this one is the one that drives me crazy because dealing with teenagers who've sort of been steeped in, you know, superheroes who never stay dead and they know they're not going to stay dead. So there's no emotional investment into the fact that the hero died because we know either in the next movie or at the end of the movie, he's going to come back anyway. They import that into their thinking about Jesus. Oh. Yeah, resurrection isn't special and miraculous. It's like resuscitation. Okay, then. Because this trope has been done... To death. To death. Yes. With no resurrection. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> no, that that was actually one of the turning points in my own comic book geekdom. I, I'm not nearly as into comics as I used to be. And one of the turning points was when they killed Captain America. Captain America's my favorite superhero. But I saw it and my reaction was, eh, he'll be back. Oh. And it just, there there was no emotional gut punch. There was nothing because, yeah, they killed him, but yeah, you know, he'll, they'll, they'll bring him back. It'll be, you know, a clone or it was a fake bullet or it was something. You know, or, you know, Doctor Strange will reverse time or something. I don't know, whatever. I just didn't care. And that, that that's the kiss of death for fandom. When I no longer care <laughs> about the character, I'm not spending my time and money on that anymore. What happens when you don't care right from the beginning? Maybe you don't get into it in the first place. Okay, then how does that explain us watching every episode of Moon Knight? Why did we watch that? Hoping that it would make us care. Oh, okay. There we go. That's a whole other podcast episode too. Yes. So let's talk about works that are explicitly Christian. And this is where you really get to geek out. Hooray! Lord of the Rings is not an allegory. Well, no. uh, uh, it's an allegory uh, for life. It's, I mean, it's the whole you catastrophe. Yeah, I uh, told... Uh, well, mo- the, the allegory thing, most most people question Tolkien as, uh, whether or not this was an allegory for Ring of the Nibelung. Okay. And he said, no. <laughs> Explicitly. The only connection is there's a ring in it. Okay. That's it. But there's tropes. There's tropes. Let's there talk is about explicitly the Christ, We're tropes. going to talk about Christ tropes. Christ tropes. Okay. I'm, I'm, I am restraining myself because uh, Tolkien brings his Christian worldview to bear on all sorts of levels. And you might get emails from uh, Tolkien heads who've read the Silmarillion front and back. and you know, Well, he was a little bit off with this one. <laughs> so yeah, Christ figures are all over the place. So one of them uh, would be Gandalf. Again, you know, the... the uh, well, actually, yeah, if you really want to get into it, Gandalf is, sort of fits more of a uh, an angel or archangel figure in Tolkien's cosmology. But we see a lot of the Christ tropes. So this is the thing where the character doesn't have to literally be a Christ in order to portray these tropes. So the best uh, one is the death and resurrection. Yes. Especially so, related to Gandalf. With Gandalf. So one of the things, so Gandalf, I mean, he, 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 he does come from heaven. Mm-hmm. He battles a you know dark demonic force and he dies and falls into darkness so he descends to the dead and and then he comes back uh instead of gandalf the gray he is now gandalf the white so it is a a resurrection and he is resurrected to greater glory if gandalf comes from heaven i mean you've got the angel thing but could we actually put him like as a descetic savior too maybe would he fit that trope do you think uh possibly because um as a okay, you know, uh, email me if I'm doing this wrong, Tolkien heads. And I think it's, I think what they're called is, is the uh, Myars. I might be wrong. I might I might be totally wrong. Uh, but anyway, um, this th- they are celestial beings who are basically archangels. So if he is, so he looks human. He looks human, but he's not human. There we go. He is a divine being. So let's talk about a human who is a Christ trope in Lord of the Rings. Okay. Hobbits okay, are not so humans. Hobbits, okay, I was, I, that, no, that was I said human. I, said I said humans. humans. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to ask if we're talking hobbits yet, but okay. Humans, we've got Aragorn. Aragorn is the... He's going to uh, reclaim his kingdom. He is, in, he, he is an exiled king who fights, who overcomes evil, and in a sense uh, descends to the dead and does a harrowing of hell. Because Aragorn enters into sort of you know a, a cave where there's an army of 
tormented spirits and he enlists them to fight on his side and then frees them from their captivity. Okay. Now let's turn to hobbits. Hobbits. Uh, Frodo. Frodo. How is Frodo a Christ trope? He bears evil. He carries a wound that does not heal. He sacrifices himself. At the end, he doesn't die because uh, at the very end, the evil overtakes him and it's Gollum who takes the evil into himself and then dies. Uh, another another one we could bring in as sort of embodying some of the Christ tropes would be Sam in that Sam carries the burden of sin that Frodo cannot carry. Hmm. Frodo can't continue. They're, they're on their way into Mount Doom, but it's just too much. Sam lifts him up and carries him and so you know, bears the ring that Frodo cannot bear by, by picking... Frodo up. So Frodo cannot even do this under his own power. It is by the power of another that he's able to fulfill his task. That's where the difference between allegory and trope is. We have different Christ tropes across different characters. Right. With an allegory, only one character can be Jesus. Yes. You, you have to have an actual Jesus. This is not Pilgrim's Progress. Right. Pilgrim's Progress is allegory. We're talking tropes. Let's talk about Harry Potter because we have kids that are obsessed with Harry Potter. I love Harry Potter. I never understood the whole Christian shouldn't read Harry Potter because there's Christian imagery all the way through the series. There is, but I mean, now I get it because that's sort of my upbringing. Okay. My upbringing was that you that uh, a good Christian boy does not get into anything that involves magic because that's like glorifying witchcraft and things like that. Lord of the Rings was okay. Well, so that, that that's the thing. The, I, I think it was the inconsistency that sort of made me question that to the point that I'm okay reading fantasy these days. So yeah, we're, we're not supposed to have magic or sorcerers or witches or anything like that because the Bible says don't do that stuff. But I can uh, read the Narnia books. Right. Which has witches and spells and if you really get into it, there's things like pagan gods show up in Narnia. And I'm kind of I'm reading this. I'm like, hey, now, hang on. My parents told me I'm not allowed to watch He-Man because there's magic in it. But I'm reading about Aslan speaking to a river god. So you and, didn't, and, you and didn't, Tolkien's okay. Wait, 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 wait. You didn't, you didn't watch He-Man as a kid? No, I did not watch He-Man as a kid. I was not, uh, that was not permitted. So the fact that I show our, showed our kids He-Man and Shira, we're okay with that, right? Yeah, just don't tell my parents we do this. <laughs> that being said, re-watching it as an adult, I can't get over how low quality that oh, show was. The bad animation is just... Yeah. But but the, the shows that made us, or the toys that made us, do a whole thing about He-Man. Right. And which is fascinating. Anyway. Yeah. Off topic. We're going Redirecting. Back to Harry Redirect. Potter. Harry Potter. Let's talk about the trope of sacrificial death. Right. Well, that's... So, if any of you have not read the last book, skip this part. <laughs> Fast forward or, or scroll or whatever it is you do. Which we're in a really interesting place because our kid has read the entire series. Our other two have not. And so she has to censor herself quite a bit to not give the spoilers. Yeah. I've had to stop myself a couple of times from going, Yes, yeah, shame about what happened to Dobby. <laughs> the kids are going to be so crushed when they hear about Dobby. Good. Okay. But anyway... Traumatizing your children is good. Anyway, so (laughs) self-sacrifice, that runs through several of the books. I mean, you know, for one thing we have, I mean, you know, Dumbledore lets himself be Avada Kedavra'd by Snape 
in order to... Snape killed Dumbledore! <gasps> you didn't hear that if you haven't read the books yet. You also don't uh, hear the, the following. Harry Potter lays down his life in an act of self-sacrifice. He also lets himself get whammied with a death curse in order to save others. And then, through the power of self-sacrificial love, he comes back. So Dumbledore doesn't get a resurrection. No, Harry Dumbledore's does. dead. But Harry gets, you know, Harry gets to be the boy who lived again. What about Harry's mom? Harry's mom, that's another uh, self-sacrifice. And also we see the power of self-sacrifice because when Voldemort murdered the parents uh, trying to get at Harry, the loving act of self-sacrifice imbued Harry with a protective power so, such that the, the love undoes evil. Is Neville Longbottom a Christ trope? I don't know, but I'm certainly on Team Longbottom when it comes to who's actually the chosen one. There we go. I like Neville better than Harry. Now, there's a, a Christ trope that we didn't talk about, but it's basically the Christus Victor trope, this sort of great battle between good and evil and good finally conquering evil. We have that Christus Victor trope in Harry Potter because Harry goes up against Voldemort, right. who is quintessential evil. And it is the act of self-sacrifice that defeats him. Right. So we've got that kind of trope too. Now here's a really interesting question. Is there a way that Voldemort is a Christ trope? I don't know about that. Well, okay, so this is one we haven't talked about, but divine and human, right? Jesus okay. is fully God and fully human. Is there something tropish about the fact that Voldemort is wizard-born and muggle-born? Uh... You, well, okay, I don't know if I like this. Uh, <laughs> but I suppose an argument could be made, especially if we're connecting it with Christological heresies, because that doesn't make him fully human, fully wizard. It makes him half and half. That's right. So there we He's go. He's a hybrid. Right. And that's the thing. The tropes are like playing with themes, yeah. right? I mean, and if we're going to do that, then Harry might fit another one because he is raised by muggles. And if we're saying that human, or, or yeah, that that muggles represent the human side and wizards are the divine, then he is of divine birth but raised by humans. Right. So sort of like the the Dursleys are like the adopted father of Joseph or something. I'm kind of not liking this. I'm glad this is not an allegory. That's right. We're just we're, we're we've got tropes here. Okay. So those are explicitly Christian. Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. Let's talk about. Just blockbusters. Blockbusters! So let's talk about Superman. And we're going to be very specific as we talk about Superman because there have been many iterations of Superman. Yes. I want you to talk about the Christopher Reeve Superman because that's the that classic. And is the best. Yes. That being said, Superman. Yeah. Christopher Reeve is not my favorite Superman. Oh, really? Who's your favorite Superman? Dean Cain. Nobody's perfect. Hey! That was the best show ever. I'm sitting here judging you. Okay, can we at least agree that it's better than that monstrosity of a Superman Returns movie that you took me to? Yes, we can. Okay. I I still hold out Superman 2 as the best Superman movie ever. Anyway, going back to Superman 1. Superman 1 really leans into some of the Christ tropes. And Superman's an interesting one. If we just wanted to do, you know, Superman himself and do an episode on that, he is a trope machine because he's also Moses. 
I mean, he's placed in a basket to escape death and then is found and raised by uh, someone else to be the deliverer. So yeah, super, but, but Superman's got a lot of Christ tropes. He is, uh, he's the, uh, the, he is not human, but he appears human. Mm-hmm. He is a moral exemplar. Superman is supposed to show us the way. Uh, he is the man of tomorrow and the, the big blue Boy Scout. But we've also got, I mean, we, we've got, you know, kind of really laying heavily into Superman as divine. There's a scene in which he's flying with Lois and she's thinking, you're like a god. As Superman in his crystal Moses basket flying through space is heading toward Earth, we get Marlon Brando uh, voiceovers of his father, Jarrell, sort of, you know, giving him instruction, kind of like programmed instruction being fed into his infant brain or something like that. So uh, I guess he doesn't have to grow into being a awesome person. He's just there because you know, he's, it's been downloaded. But even their names but have the godlike quality. Like the, the L. The L. The L, yes. Because the Elohim. And, right. So we've got Jor-El and Kal-El. Yep. Talk about the quote. Okay, the quote. So one of these quotes, one of these uh, voiceovers is Jor-El talking to Kal-El. So that's uh, Superman's Kryptonian name. Talking to Kal-El about Earth and where he is sending him and who these humans are. This is going to be my totally spot-on Brando impersonation. So prepare yourself for true awesomeness. If it sounds exactly like my normal voice, that's because I am Marlon Brando uh, in in, in real life. Live as one of them, Kal-El. To discover where your strength and your power are needed. Always hold in your heart the pride of your special heritage. They can be a great people, Kalel, if they wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. For this reason, above all, their capacity for good, I have sent them you, my only son. Ooh, that's a little too on the nose, right? It's very on the nose. Okay. Yep. Now, I wanted to talk about Benjamin Sisko from Deep Space Nine. Okay. I don't think we have time. I think we should do a Star Trek Deep Space Nine and theology episode anyway. I am all in for this. Well, especially because the theology in Star Trek volume is very close to coming out. So right. we should geek out on that. So we're going to okay. skip Ben we'll Sisko. We'll skip Star Trek. Okay. But let's talk about Captain America. Captain America. He is the quintessential adoptionist savior. Right. So tell us why he's the adoptionist savior. Well, the adoptionist savior trope is one in which Jesus starts out as an ordinary guy, but because he is so morally advanced, he is messiahed. He he is anointed and made into the savior. Yeah, in this case, we've got Steve Rogers, who's the you know scrawny little guy who uh, can't get into the army because of his many health issues, but. We already see, I mean, we, we see in the scene in the alley where he's standing up to bullies, where he's demanding respect for our armed forces personnel. Uh, we see in his uh, willingness to uh, sacrifice himself. He throws himself on a grenade at one point. It's a fake grenade, but he didn't know that at the time. So we see his virtue, and it is because of his virtue that Dr. Erskine selects him to be the one given the super soldier serum and made into... Uh, the savior of America who will uh, punch Nazis. Mm -hmm. Is that Christ trope in the original comic books for Captain America? 
if we go all the way back to the 1940s, not so much. Okay. In the 19 the 1940s, it's a very stripped down version. They they want to get past the backstory and right into the Nazi face punching. Oh, okay. So you sort of have like a, there's like one page, and all you've got is Steve Rogers, too frail and sickly to serve in the army, has volunteered for this experimental treatment. Boodly boodly boodly. He's big and muscly. And then Nazis, boom boom boom. Okay. So we kind of we skip past that. In the comic, there's other stuff in the comics in which we find the other that what makes Captain America Captain America is not his physical enhancements; it is his moral awesomeness. So let's stick with the MCU. Okay, portrayal. MCU. We also have the sacrificial death. Yes. Right. He's he's he, he flies the flying wing into the ice and kills himself. And then we have a resurrection. We have a resurrection, which again is more like a resuscitation. Yeah, he he was only mostly dead. And, but, but even the sense of nobility and saving the day is sort of this savior figure. Right. Okay, my favorite example of a Decetic savior trope. So the Decetic okay. savior is appears human, but, but isn't is not human. human. Is, okay. We have to talk about Doctor Who. How do we talk about sci-fi geek stuff and not talk about Doctor Who? Mandatory. Mandatory. So, first off, who is your doctor? My doctor is number 10. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I have... I've watched a lot more of the classic Doctor Who than you have. Mm-hmm. And so I understand people who latch on to like you know, the, the fourth Doctor. I especially like the second Doctor. Second Doctor's fun. But yeah, in terms of who who is my Doctor, who do I really like, it, it's David Tennant. And my favorite combination is David Tennant and Catherine Tate. Yes, Doctor Donna. Donna. That's right. Which, the news is that they're back. Oh, I hope they don't mess this up. Please don't mess this up. Please don't mess this up. And Wilfred is back too. So I have yeah. hopes. The Doctor as a Christ figure. Yes. We do. We get the Doctor as a Christ. So yeah, uh, as a Gallifreyan Time Lord, he is nearly immortal and blessed with amazing powers, mostly involving time. And he's so not human that he, the, the whole thing is he has two hearts. He has two hearts. Right. But he moves among us. He's, wherever he goes in the TARDIS, he sometimes, he somehow almost always ends up finding himself surrounded by humans. Right. And he saves us. He over. saves over and over and over. How many times does he die? Oh, I don't know. What are we up to now? We've got 13, and then there's a couple who don't get names. So yeah, multiple resurrections. We got resurrections all over the place. But is including it? But, but some is it self- not actually a resurrection? That, that's the thing. Well, okay. <laughs> I guess how you know that depends on how deep we want to go in this. I mean, this is so, where the trope breaks down, because while he's still the doctor, he's not the doctor. No, it's not like Thomas he's, could recognize Jesus. He's no, yeah. It, he's somebody he, else. He is a new person. Yeah. But sort of the same person, but a new person. With a new personality and a new wardrobe and a new TARDIS interior. And, and new companions. New companions. In which case, like, a church trope doesn't work no, either. No, it doesn't, because the Doctor dumps his companions. As soon as he... Usually. I mean, regenerates. There, some, we sometimes see some carrying on over, but not really long term. Mm-hmm. We, we, we don't see very many multi-Doctor companions. Mm-mm. And, of course, the trope here we could also have is just the idea of his companions being like the Disciples. They're being taught by the Doctor. Which works because one of the things that we've seen, especially in New Who, is uh, we get follow-up. Right. So we find out things, you know, know, whatever happened to Ace, whatever happened uh, to Sarah Jane. Even Mickey the Idiot uh, gets some of this. (laughs) Where being with the Doctor 
sort of levels you up. Right. And you become a hero in your own right after you have left, after the doctor has left you. Right. So, up to this point, all of our examples of Christ tropes have been men. Yes, they have. But that's not a requirement for a Christ trope. Nope. Let's talk, we're going to talk about two. Two of them. Emma in Once Upon a Time. Who is explicitly called in the show the Savior. That's right. She's prophesied. She's going to undo the evil, break the curse, all that. Yeah. So, With so that's the an power of love. <laughs> and and the, the, the sending and the returning mm-hmm. and yeah. Uh, the other one, I mean, this this one is is quintessential to our identity as, as sci-fi geeks and yes. as geek culture is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She saved the world a lot. <laughs> that's right. So she's an adoptionist savior. She yes, was a normal so girl. She was a normal girl until she was chosen. Right. But is, did it have uh, anything to do with her virtue? It, it, that's the thing. It didn't have anything to do with her virtue. Right. Uh, as far as we can tell, I'm going to say adoption. Adoption as Slayer is kind of random. Until like, the seventh season where it sounds like there's like sort of some sort of like DNA characteristic in a bunch of women throughout right. the world who could be called. Because that's part of the whole thing with season seven is they basically make all of these potentials into Slayers. Into Slayers. I mean, one thing we do see, I mean, we certainly see with uh, the character Faith is that you don't need to have moral virtue before you become a slayer. Right. But especially with Buffy, she was a normal Valley, California girl who was nothing special. And her life radically changes with these superpowers. And of course, Joss Whedon's thing is teeny tiny blonde girl kicks butt. Yes. Which, I mean, at the time was a really good storytelling move. Um, you know, now, however many decades later from the 90s we've we've come, that's been done to death and it's cliche now. But at the time, the idea that uh, the vampire would follow the tiny little blonde girl into the alley only for it to be a trap and the tiny little blonde girl wrecks the vampire. Right. That was that was fresh and new and interesting. Yeah. Oh, and even the Scooby gang was new. The fact that she wasn't a hero by herself, but she had companions with her. Anything in the 2000s that has the Scooby gang finds its genesis in Buffy, because that's where we got that first. There we go. It completely changed storytelling. Anyway. Anyway. Sacrificial deaths. More than one. Yep. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Yeah, including uh, in, in, in one of her deaths, she apparently died, went to heaven, and then came back. Yeah, and then that, I mean, that whole sense It all gets weird, but... Yeah. But, but a trope we haven't... I mean, we, we, we hinted at it a little bit with, with Batman, for example. And with Aragorn. And with Aragorn. But this sort of, like, raising of hell. Yes. We see that at the beginning of season three of Buffy. So she's run away from home. She ends up in... I think it's L.A. L.A., I think, yeah. I think it's L.A. And she ends up sort of in... She ends up getting thrown into a hell dimension. Yes. Where they're all enslaved and time passes differently. And so tiny blonde girl with the scythe just just you know she she frees the captives. Yeah. And, and rescues you know, and, like she brings the message of freedom. I don't know about the message of freedom, but she literally strikes off the chains. Right. So even that is a Christ trope of this sort of descended to the dead raising of hell whatever. Let's talk about badly done Christ figures. Okay. Oh, you want to talk about the other one first? I want to talk about the other okay. one. So we are, we are saying that Christ figures do not necessarily have to be men. Right. So keep going with that. I've well, done Emma and Buffy. Christ figures also do not necessarily even have to be human. 
Ooh. I mean, we, we've, if we if we go allegory, we've already got Aslan for Christ figures don't necessarily have to be human, but we've got Christ tropes in non-human characters as well. And so, listeners, I want you to take a moment to consider a movie in which the central uh, central elements of the plot are that the original Lord of the Earth returns to reclaim his kingdom, is betrayed, dies descends to the underworld, is resurrected, and saves us all by defeating a multi-headed dragon that had set itself up as the false lord of the earth. I am referring, of course, to Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Hang on. Godzilla as a Christ figure. Godzilla as a Christ figure. In this movie, at least, Godzilla is a Christ figure. Okay, which one is this one? This is, I think, the most recent... No, almost... Second to most recent. So this this was before King Kong and... God, uh, the King Kong versus Godzilla. Okay. But it is part of this new wave of uh, Godzilla films. Now, didn't you actually send me a, a, a screen cap that actually has a cross in the scene? It is. So uh, the multi-headed dragon, Ghidra is uh, sort of going around the world, raising up monsters so that it can have a monster army and uh, take over and destroy the world. And in the scene where Ghidorah goes to, I believe it was Mexico, and frees Rodan and resurrects this giant monster bird kind of character, we see... There's a volcano, and it's all very dark and red and fiery. And uh, you know, Ghidorah you know rears up and you know spreads its wings in a very threatening manner. You know, does the the Ghidorah scream? And and right there in the foreground is a cross. So it's like this Satan figure exalting or and challenging the, the the cross and is going to defeat the cross and take over the world. We could even talk about the tropes of Christian images, which we're not going to talk about. But right. in the class, I talk about the trope of Jesus and Jesus and his disciples at the Lord's Supper. That has been troped to death. Oh yeah, the the, the Lord's Supper has been troped to death. Paeta yep. uh, has been troped to death. The crucified hero shot. Well, so like in uh, uh, the uh, Spider Man, uh, where he gets uh, you know beaten up by Doctor Octopus, and the people are lift are lifted him up and are carrying him. Uh, he he's got the arms spread right out there in the the crucifix shot uh, or pose. See, and I would call that badly done, Christ figures, where the hero always ends up splayed out. Yeah, just because Peter Parker was had his arms splayed out and is being lifted up in a way that has been represented in art doesn't make him a Christ figure. Right. Yeah, there are some examples of really badly done Christ tropes. One of the worst is actually from an MST3K episode. So this is, we're going super geek here. Mystery Science Theater 3000. They watch really bad movies and make comments over them. And in one of these movies, I'm not going to get into the details, but the villain, basically they've sort of been ripping off the short story, The Most Dangerous Game. Okay. So hunt humans on your island. And he's this, you know, this murderous human hunting killer. And, you know, there, there there's the fight and the he gets defeated. And in, in being defeated, he is pushed back back against a rack of spikes and he is pushed back so that he's pushed back in the crucified spot and the spikes go through his hands oh 
And the, the 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 little characters in the Mystery Science Theater three thousand who make the comment uh, who make the comments just sort of they were flabbergasted. They go what? So he's Jesus now? How does that make sense? What are you doing, movie? So yeah. Christ tropes can be done really badly as well as done well. Okay, so probably the worst one. That Aside from a crucified villain? W- well, that people know, because MSC3K okay. is a little bit... We're, that's, that's a little in the weeds. I'm going to throw this out. I want to see what your reaction is. Anakin Skywalker. Oh, there was no father. He was conceived by the midichlorians. <laughs> yeah, just throw that one right in there for no reason. He is the prophesied one. He will bring balance to the force. You were the chosen one, Anakin. We believed in you. Those movies don't exist. No, they don't. Although, with the the, the three sequels that have been made, I'm more willing to let the prequels exist. (gasps) That says something. That's how bad the new Star Wars is. That it's making me look back with nostalgic fondness. On the prequels. That being said, I I really struggle because our kids love the prequels. Well, that's because they're children. (laughs) The other one, which is is sort of had a resurrection, as it were, Neo in the Matrix. Yeah. I mean, mean, so 1999, everyone was talking about the Matrix. Right. And then nobody was. And now the movie's back. But even the movie. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of like some of our. You know, some of the comments we've also made, you know, that the, uh, I am of the opinion that there is only one Matrix movie. Right. They did not make the sequels. But the Christ trope there of Neo is really badly done. He's yeah. beginning to believe. So, yeah, he's, he's he is a prophesied savior who becomes the one. So he's he, he's not born the one, but he becomes the one when he believes that he's the one. At which point... He dies because he gets shot by Agent Smith and then he stands up and he is resurrected with power and glory. Right. And ascends into the heavens by doing a Superman flying away shot (sighs) at the very end of the film. You're not making me want to go back and rewatch that movie. I don't know that I want to introduce our kids to that movie. You don't want to follow the White Rabbit? Uh, Red pill, blue pill. So badly done. We also have just plain old overdone. Yes. How many times do Sam and Dean Winchester die and come back? I've lost count. And I mean, it goes to that point of, with you with the comic books, I just don't care. I couldn't watch the last season, and I should have been right in there like a dirty shirt watching the last season because, like, Winchester's, like, I'm all about, yeah. yeah. Oh, look, one of the boys sacrificed himself for the other one. Again. I'm going to go get a soda. Yeah, a couple more episodes, he'll be back. Yeah. Yeah. Even Doctor Who can be overdone. Yeah. Uh, Buffy saved the world a lot. So what do we do with this? Like, what's the takeaway from this? I think part of the takeaway from this is how much our culture has been influenced by the Bible. Even people who have never picked up a Bible have sort of been marinating in Western civilization where our stories have been influenced and shaped by biblical themes. I think the other thing that I'm noticing is we sort of have the reverse happening, that our portrayals of Jesus, our understanding of Jesus, is impacted by our popular culture. Very much so. And so people will just say something, oh, Jesus is basically Captain America, as if the standard isn't Jesus, 
the standard is Captain America and then Jesus gets slotted in. Right. Which is backwards. But churches don't help it either. I mean, we have entire mega churches that do the gospel according to the MCU as their pitch for a sermon series. Yep. Uh, yeah, I've seen people uh, sort of you know, talk about how the uh, the Bible is just so full of cliches and Jesus is not an orig- original figure. Because look at how all these other Christ figures, I mean, like Superman and, you know, and, and King Arthur and stuff. It, I mean, it's just, it's, it, it, it's not, it, it's nothing new. It's nothing original. It's not, and, and you just kind of like want to you know, grab this perfect, person and go do you have a calendar (laughs) do you know in what year superman was invented do you know in what year the gospels were written which came first and ultimately the story of jesus is more compelling than captain america or the winchester boys or buffy or godzilla and so how do yeah. we, like, so I, how do we... I wonder if there's something in there speaking to our need for a savior. Mm. Where even, if we're not going to follow Jesus, we will invent a fake Jesus. <gasps> I've just made a connection. Okay, I know what our next recording needs to be. Right on. What's our next recording? We need to talk about strange rites. Ooh. Because where, I mean, so that's Tara Isabella Burton's book about sort of the new religious movement in our secular culture. Yeah. People have turned Harry Potter into a religion. Yes. Oh, there's so much we could do there. There is so, so much. Harry Potter as a trope has now become the religion. Okay, can we talk about strange rights? We can, we can talk about strange rights. Yeah, we've got all sorts of... But yeah, as as kind of a a general, I don't know, maybe I'm doing a psychology of religion thing. When you walk away from God, you still need a God. You you need a replacement. You still need a savior. And it's like your, your heart knows that you need a savior. So you get Captain America or Harry Potter and just love that story. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Because what happens when that when that disappoints? Like, look at the kerfuffle with J.K. Rowling. Right. And all these Potterheads are like, but, but, but Harry is our savior. See, and this is why I like theology. I mean, this is the quintessential why theology right here. We see theology in everything that we're doing. And we need to have these conversations. And so I thank you all for joining us on an hour-long rant related to Jesus and pop culture, our two favorite things in this house. There will be more Dr. Hackney and Dr. Hackney team-ups. The positive psychology one is coming out soon, but it won't always be about psychology, but it will always be about theology. Blessings.